All right. Well, good morning again. Thank you all for being here. Uh, thank you to 9K Homes. When are we going to Baja, Andy? Let's do it. All right. Well, we are finishing our series this morning on, on 1 Peter. Uh, as many of you know, we've spent the last several weeks walking through this letter where Peter addresses this issue of suffering and persecution in the early church. And as we kind of close off this letter and continue to consider this whole experience of suffering, I think it's fair to imagine that there are really two questions that Peter's readers are hoping he's going to address. Two questions that come up when we go through suffering. First is, why is this happening? And what should we do about it? Uh, my son Grayson gets sick all the time. He's just one of those kids that always has a runny nose or a headache or a, a tummy ache or, or whatever. And so whenever this happens, it, it's always the same basic process. First, he like goes into this little funk. He gets really bummed out and, and kind of starts to feel sorry for himself. And he lies in, in his bed and says to us in the most pathetic, sad voice he can, like, Dad, why does this always happen to me? Why do I always get sick? I know, it breaks your heart like the first couple times, and then after that, it's like, oh. But right, he just wants to know, why does this happen to me? And so the process, you know, we kind of have to comfort him and, and support him, but eventually get him to the point where we can ask that second question. What are we going to do about this, right? Do we need to take some Tylenol, blow your nose, get some rest, drink some water, whatever? All right, when we're struggling, when we're having a hard time, nobody ever just really like sits there and takes it. Right, we we want to know, why is this happening, and what do I need to do about it? And I think what's interesting is over the course of this series, we've seen Peter give us plenty of answers to the second question. What should we do about this? For four chapters, he's emphasized the Christian response to suffering, pursuing holiness, community, living in goodness and love, trusting God, pursuing Christ-likeness. And obviously, we've talked about a lot of those reasons. That's really kind of been the focus of our series, and hopefully that's, that's been meaningful for you. But thus far, Peter has given us very few answers to that first question. Why? Why is this happening? Why are we suffering? Why is this happening to the believers in the early church. Now, on one hand, before we go any further, I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, we're in chapter 5. Peter hasn't really talked about it. I think it's safe to say that this is not his focus in the letter. It, it really isn't, and, and he's not especially interested in, in unpacking this huge kind of weighty question of, you know, why God allows suffering and evil and struggle and all that. And so we're not going to fully get into this question today. But at the same time, in our passage this morning, we do get one small but really important answer to this question. One reason why the church is suffering, one reason why persecution is taking place. And I think this answer is really important because not only does it help us to understand the nature of suffering, it also gives us a deeper motivation to pursue Peter's suggested response. In understanding why we suffer, we're more motivated to faithfully respond. So let's go ahead and jump into our text, 1 Peter 5. Uh, again, this is the last chapter of this letter, and so Peter's going to kind of tackle a bunch of different topics, 
Uh, and so we'll read this entire chapter, and then we're going to focus in on just two verses this morning. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. He writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I think in many ways when we read a chapter like this, it can be easy to miss its significance. Uh, some of your Bibles might have a, a title over this section called Final Exhortations. And, and really, it does kind of feel like a bit of a wrap-up chapter. You know, he, he retouches on a, a bunch of different topics he's already talked about, talks about leadership, makes another push for faithfulness, and then he says some goodbyes to the people who he's writing to. But I want to draw your attention to this one short section of this chapter. Because if you notice, in verse 8, Peter takes on a topic that is brand new, something he hasn't talked about at all to this point. And, and in the context of this kind of wrap-up section, it feels a little bit out of place. So beginning in verse 8, let me read these two verses. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So here, Peter is kind of unveiling, finally, one clear, concrete answer as to why. The reason for their struggle. And it's kind of a doozy. It's kind of a big deal, a big, massive reveal that behind the suffering, behind all this persecution that they're experiencing, is the devil himself. Peter's reminding believers of the fact that Satan is involved in this struggle. And this is something that kind of Peter has done throughout the letter, this whole idea of reframing experience. Right? Throughout the letter, he's kind of said, hey, this is what you can see in the world around you, but this is what's really happening. And so what you can see, right, is these individual isolated incidents of persecution. Right? Your neighbors mocking you, your family and friends rejecting you, your master mistreating you. And those are obviously important, and he's kind of dealt with those things and talked about how to respond. 
But as we near the end of the letter, he now says, hey, but also, what's, what's really happening behind the scenes of all of those isolated incidents of persecution is this larger, systematic oppression, this spiritual battle. See, one of the things that scripture is clear about is this idea that there is a larger war, a larger conflict between God and Satan that has been going on for a really long time. And as God's people, as people who are aligned with, you know, team God, team Jesus, Satan is at war with us too. And so as believers ask the question why this was happening to them, Peter reminds them of this simple idea that Satan is the real enemy, that he's at work, and this persecution is a form of spiritual, demonic attack. Now, before we continue, let's acknowledge that this is another pretty challenging topic for us. I think for the vast majority of us, we're pretty happy to kind of not think about this or not talk about this, to not address the issue of Satan, satanic influence, demonic attacks. Uh, about 80 years ago, famous author C.S. Lewis wrote this about Christians and Satan. He wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are, pleased, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So Lewis is basically saying that we kind of typically err on one of two sides. The second thing he mentions, I think, is, is a little bit less common, at least in our specific context. But it's definitely happened throughout history, and it definitely happens in some places in the world. But this mistake is to basically make everything about Satan, to attribute all kinds of everything in their life to satanic influence. Right? So whether it's uh, every instance of evil, every sinful person, even small mis misfortunes like you know, a red light or, or high gas prices, pe some people have a tendency to see Satan everywhere. Now Lewis warns us against this because ultimately this attributes too much power to Satan. But I think the second error, or actually the first one that he mentions, this other extreme, is much more relevant for us. Uh, this mistake is to ignore him completely. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't believe that he's real. It doesn't mean that we don't kind of intellectually acknowledge that Satan is a true biblical idea that has some merit. But functionally and practically, we live like he doesn't exist. The idea of demons and demonic influence and spiritual warfare, it just seems so out there. And it doesn't maybe feel like it comes into play in modern society or doesn't really have anything to do with, with me. Now, truth be told, I think most of us are pretty happy to ignore him. Part of this is just the lives that we live, and part of it is like it feels good to not think about and talk about Satan. I personally am very glad that you know, when I went to seminary, I didn't have to take a class on, like, intro to exorcisms. I didn't have to, like, practice doing anything scary. I didn't have to walk over to the Biola bookstore to buy holy water and crucifixes for my exorcism homework. 
That's a good thing. I, I appreciate that it's not that involved in our life. But I think we are pretty comfortable to live in a world where evil exists, bad people exist, but Satan is like up there or, or over there or out there. He's not attacking me. The problem, of course, is that Lewis says we are playing with fire if we have this attitude, that this actually delights Satan. Because the Bible says in, in no uncertain terms that Satan is real and he means business. In this passage, Peter says he is like a lion, this ferocious creature, and he's looking for someone to devour. Right? And the implication of this, right, is he's not just looking for anyone. He's looking for believers, for Christians, for people like you and me, members of God's spiritual household. You are his target. And so, if you don't know who he is, if you don't know what he's up to, but he's out there, then we're susceptible. So in light of that, the question we want to ask is, what is Peter telling us about Satan? What is it he wants us to know with these two short verses, and what can we take away from that for our real life? See, this short passage reveals a simple but powerful truth about Satan, that he will do whatever he can, anything in his power to get you to live a compromised faith, a life and faith of compromise. What does Satan really want to do to Christians? Goal number one is to get you to live a fruitful, or to stop living a fruitful, purposeful life. I remember when I was growing up, my basic belief about Satan, or kind of just the way I felt personally, was like he existed to scare me. Like to be spooky and terrifying and to like exist for my nightmares. Uh, I suspect this is, had something to do with the fact that my junior high leaders would tell us these terrifying stories about demons and Satan. Now these were fine, upstanding young men like Mike and Scott Hamamura, Kevin Hatanaka, to name a few. But, you know, I remember being at, like, youth retreats or at Navajo mission trip, and we would be up late, us little, like, 11, 12-year-olds, just, like, in our sleeping bags, and these older guys are telling us these stories. I remember this one night, vividly, this guy, Mike Hamamura, told us a story about this, this demon from Brazil with cat eyes, and it, like, stood at the, like, the, the other end of the room, and he would open his eyes, and he would see the cat eyes, and this scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. I was so terrified of this cat demon for like a few years or like my whole life basically. You know, if I like, if Alyssa's out of town and the kids aren't in the house and I go to sleep by myself, that's a rough night for me. I always think about the cat demon. <laughs> but, you know, obviously when we think about Satan and demons, you know, it's easy to think about kind of this pop culture imagery. You know, and, and, and exorcists and crazy demonic spiritual warfare stuff that's out there. Now, just to be clear, there is truth to those stories. I actually saw Mike Hamamura yesterday, and he was like, oh, yeah, I remember that happening. I was like, oh, my gosh, what? That was real? Uh, but, you know, we don't want to dismiss a story like that because Satan has worked this way, and he certainly still can. But 
this isn't the point. This isn't Satan's goal to be scary. Instead, his goal is to do whatever necessary to challenge your commitment to God, to make you want something other than what God says is good. All this stuff that we've been talking about, holiness, purpose, community, Christ-likeness, Satan wants nothing more than for you to say, no thanks, not for me. That is winning for Satan. And what Peter reminds us of, what he shows us in this letter and in the larger context of all the stuff he's been talking about, is that Satan's strategy, the way he does this is often way less direct than we think. He usually, for us, doesn't appear as a serpent or doesn't show up with horns and a tail. Instead, he works behind the scenes. He wants to deceive and trick and manipulate believers. Scripture says he is the father of lies. And so Peter is making this connection between Satan as this, this roaming, prowling lion and, and believers' experience of suffering. And he's saying behind that suffering, Satan is at work trying to communicate, trying to tell you, trying to get you to believe his lies. So when people persecute you, when they mock you, when they mistreat you, Satan is using that. He's prowling around and he's bringing up all these questions that are flooding your mind. Like, hey, wouldn't it just be easier if you guys would, like, just renounce your faith, man? Like, your neighbors, they'd stop making fun of you. You could go back to your old job. You know, you wouldn't have all this struggle. Like, is Jesus really worth it? You're living in poverty. You're at the bottom of the social barrel. You are nobody with nothing. All you got to do is walk away, and things will be fine. See, here at the end of the letter, as Peter makes this one final push for faithfulness, he's saying, this is why it's so important that you persevere, that you do all these things I've been talking about, holiness, community, purpose, love, all of it, because if you give in, Satan has gotten what he wanted from you. Now, here's the thing. In our time, in our context, Satan's trying to do the exact same thing. His goals have remained the same, and, and his strategy really hasn't changed that much either. He's still telling the same old lies. Now, sometimes he might do this through persecution and struggle in the exact same way he was doing it back then for Peter's readers. But I think more common for us is not the persecution side. It is the allure of everything else, this temptation, the desire for a better, easier life. See, Satan tempts us to compromise by saying, hey, you know, this life with Jesus, man, it's, it's pretty hard. Life would be better and, and easier. You'd be happier if what you really pursued was, you know, something more comfortable. Like, wouldn't you be happier if you, you know, had more money? Just, just devote your life to that. Wouldn't you be happy if you had more stuff? Or if everyone liked you and admired you because of what school you got into or what kind of job you have or how beautiful you are? Wouldn't it be easier if, you know, you, you could just like go to church on Sundays, but devote your life. Give your heart your best to something better. 
See, even though Satan doesn't show up as a serpent today, you know, he hasn't really changed at all since Genesis 3. Same old message. Like, hey, you don't really need God. He's not actually that good. There's a better way. Trust me. And he wins when we compromise. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking necessarily about heaven and hell and salvation. I'm not saying that if we compromise in any way, if we don't live full blast 100% for Jesus at all times, that now we're unsaved or satanic or we're under Satan's power. That's a different question. But a fruitless Christian, even one who is still saved by grace, a fruitless Christian who isn't living in holiness and love and community, that's still a win for Satan. See, Satan wants Christians who are happy to live a compromised life that looks like everyone else, that shines no light in the darkness. Satan wants Christians who blissfully ignore their purpose and are too distracted to live out the gospel and share the gospel. Satan wants Christians who profess love in God but don't really have time to sacrificially love others. And Satan wants Christians who enjoy a private, individual faith but dislike the hard work of community, genuinely loving others because it's kind of uncomfortable and costly. Peter says, hey, don't let that be you. Don't be devoured by these lies that say you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. And so he offers us two powerful closing exhortations, two final things that we need to do, especially in light of this unseen reality that Satan is out there prowling around. And the first thing he says is be alert and of sober mind. He says, pay attention, be aware of what's going on around you. Whatever the opposite is of what your mind is like when you're drunk, be the complete opposite of that in your spiritual life. Now, if you've really kind of been following along in in this series, those words probably sound kind of familiar. He said them exactly in this same way twice before. Chapter 1, he tells them, with minds that are alert and fully sober, same two words, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. When Jesus Christ is revealed. Chapter 4, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. This repetition is, is pretty telling. Peter understands that for believers in a challenging, chaotic context, with everything going around them, how important it is to be alert and aware of what's going on around them. And when I think about this phrase, kind of the thing that comes to mind is winter driving in snowy or icy conditions. Uh, Our family's taken a bunch of, you know, winter ski trips over the years, and, you know, we've done a fair amount of driving on roads that are icy or frozen or, you know, even when it's, you know, blizzarding out or almost whiteout conditions. And it's just like a completely different thing than normal driving. It requires a whole different level of alertness. Like, even if you're just driving down the highway, straight line, No elevation, just driving straight. You have to pay attention. Even if you're just driving down the street two minutes to the market, you have to really lock in. You can't be tired or 
overly relaxed. You can't just kind of, you know, put your mind on cruise control and, you know, chat with, you know, whoever's sitting in the back. You got to be, like, fully attentive. When I drive in the snow, I am literally sitting up straight, hands at 10 and 2. I mean, of course, I drive like that all the time. But even more so when I'm in the snow, I'm like extra, extra cautious. But right, you know, I'm ready for anything. My eyes are peeled, you know, for, you know, maybe a patch of ice or or something dangerous on the road. Maybe other drivers who might not be driving as safely as I am, animals, hazards. I'm at full attention. And this is the overall posture that Peter says we need to have as we navigate the world around us. And he says it three times in this letter. So we we don't miss it, so we don't forget. He says, be alert, be of sober mind, hands at ten and two, as you navigate the world around you. Because he's saying, right, it's not like there's a slight chance of danger. It's not like, you know, right, there's a five, ten percent chance, a little extra chances that something will happen. He's saying, there is danger. It's out there, and it's coming for you, so be on the lookout. This means we have to look carefully. Be alert about the world around us. Be aware of the way it pulls us systematically away from hope in Jesus into hope in other things. He says, be aware and alert about yourself, right? About you specifically. How does your heart desire comfort and success? How does that make faithfulness less appealing for you what are those things that put you in danger pay attention to your life pay attention to your heart pay attention to your choices and his point again is not to say that anything and everything you know in the secular world around us or everything that's consumerism is is satanic i don't think that's true but his point is that satan's influence is all around us And Satan wins when we just kind of lazily go with the flow, right? When we put just life on autopilot and see where it takes us without living with an alertness to our faith and our choices. We have to be vigilant. That's Peter's first exhortation, but the second is just as important, probably more important. He says, resist Satan and stand firm in the faith. Now, this isn't a a new idea that he's presenting to us. In fact, this really is what the letter is about. We probably could have called this series Stand Firm because it's been such a prevalent theme. See, Peter recognizes this important point that as Satan works against us, as he fights against us, as he tries to make us compromise, one of the greatest weapons at his disposal that he will use against us over and over and over again is doubt. It's this seed, this nagging feeling of doubt. Doubt in the truth of God's word. Doubt in the value of the gospel. Doubt in God's goodness and plan. Doubt that the life he calls us to is worth it. And so as Peter closes the letter, he says it one last time for us, just to make sure that we're hearing him. He says, stand firm in your faith. Resist Satan specifically with what you believe about God by trusting him, by leaning on his goodness and grace 
trusting the life he's called you to. Because the more you suffer, the more compromise is going to look appealing. That, that's just a fact. The more you struggle, the more compromise is going to look appealing. And the more you will need to be alert and to dig deep into this well of faith. To dig deep into who God is and what he's about. In the very next verse, verse 10, Peter says this, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. See, Peter closes this letter with one last reminder of who God is, who we're being asked to place our trust in, and what he does when we trust him. He's reminding us of this basic truth that this God of grace, he has prepared a future for you, an inheritance that will never spoil, perish, or fade, a living hope that you can look to at all times, this glory with Jesus. That's forever. This, this suffering that you'll experience is nothing compared to the glory you get to experience with Jesus. And this is a God who will restore you in this lifetime, even in the suffering, as you draw near to him, as you trust him. He will give you the strength you need to overcome. He'll make you strong, firm, and steadfast. See, ultimately, Peter is reminding us that Satan is under God's authority. Satan can use some of our struggles against us, but he doesn't have the last word on our life and our future. We don't need to live in fear. We're not at the mercy of Satan's schemes. We're not helpless or alone because God has given us the power to overcome. And so what he tells us to do is pretty simple. He says, hey, just keep trying. Just try. Continue to engage your faith. Be intentional. Pay attention. Fight against compromise and fight for faithfulness like it really matters. Realize that there is something to fight against and fight. You know, I, I kind of hesitate to tell this story, but I, I think it's relevant. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I was chatting with some of the young adults here at our Thursday night group, and we were just talking about work and ministry, and, and I shared with them this, like, secret dream that I have. And when I say dream, I don't mean something that, like, I, I think about and want and I'm longing for. It's like, oh, I can't wait for this, but like a, like a in-the-back-of-my-head daydream that just kind of pops into my head once in a while. But in this dream, I, I leave my job as a pastor, maybe I get fired, <laughs> and I go to work at Trader Joe's. Now, it sounds dumb, right? It's barely even worth saying out loud, but there's a part of me that thinks, man, that would be, that would be really nice. Now, I'm being 100% honest when I say this. I love my job. I'm so lucky to have this job. I, I, I have a great boss. I have great coworkers. I get to do what I love. I love you guys. I'm not thinking about leaving at all, like for real. But there's a part of me, right, that just wants a normal life. That's tired of the constant struggle of ministry, the never-ending work of the church, and just wants to do something kind of boring and monotonous. 
Right? Part of me that wants the option of sleeping in on Sunday or you know, being able to go to Sunday brunch or having weekends off to spend time with the kids or go on you know, a lot of fun trips. Now, for the record, there's nothing against walk, working at Trader Joe's. I, I hope that's not, a, I said, called it boring and monotonous. I don't mean it like that. Like just, you know, like simple, like just accomplish a task. Right? And there's nothing wrong with working a secular job, period. But the point is, is that that's not what God has called me to. For me, the idea of Trader Joe's, that's a vision of a defeated and compromised life. And it's something that every so often I have to remind myself of that. I have to stop and think about it and, and, and stop that dream in its tracks and like, well, why do you want that? And, and how does that compare to what God wants for you? Why are you thinking that? And the reason I share that is that we all face this question in one way or another. This is the question that we started this series with. Is it worth it? Is this life we've been called to each of us in our own specific ways, is it really worth it? Is it worth the hardship and struggle, the sacrifice, the time and effort and money we put in? Is it worth the constant struggle with sin? Having to deal with sin and repent of sin and try to grow. Is it worth this, this constant, constant growth and, and, and always, you know, wanting to do more, right? You, you, you're called to love more and then you love more and then there's more love to do and it, it never ends. You can never share the gospel enough or, or live faithfully enough. Is it worth it? And on one hand, that's, such a natural question. But one of the things that we have to recognize is that it's also perhaps the most dangerous one. It's in this question that Satan fights against us. He deceives us. He ensnares us. He breaks us down. He weakens us. And the point isn't that, you know, we should feel horrible if we struggle with that question. I don't know about you guys, I'm, I'm probably going to struggle with that question in different ways for the rest of my life. Five years, I'll be talking about working at Costco or whatever. But the point isn't to feel bad about it. The point is to fight against it. Don't be complacent about that question and the lies that come with it. We have to choose to fight with faith by continuing to come back to the truth, to who God is. You know, last week, uh, as we were closing in worship, you know, I was, I was still kind of thinking about this question. I was thinking about Trader Joe's because I'd been talking about it with the young adults. And, and closing worship started, and if you were there, right, we were all feeling pretty emotional. You know, Pastor Eric gave a great sermon, and so I was already sort of feeling it. But anyway, Ben was singing King of Kings, and this lyric came up in, like, the third verse. It says, To reveal the kingdom coming, to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side, knowing this was our salvation. Jesus, for our sake, you died. And in that moment, it, it just it kind of hit me. And you know, this, this is something that we've kind of been talking about throughout this series, but this idea hit me in such a powerful way that it was worth it for Jesus. 
It was worth it to do everything he did for him to suffer and die for me. It was worth it for him to do that so that I could and you could, so that we could live this fruitful, uncompromised kingdom life. He died so that Satan's lies wouldn't have the final word, so that we could have this victory, so that we could be strong and firm and steadfast. And I think this is one of the great legacies of First Peter, and I hope it's something you take away from this series, that if it was worth it for him, then it's worth it for us. If it was worth it for him to go to the greatest length possible, then it's worth it for us to try to fight for just one more day, and, and then the next day, and then the day after that. It's always going to be worth it for us to do what we can to live the life that he's given us, to live this new birth and new hope. See, if we believe the gospel is true, that Jesus really did die on the cross and rise again, then no matter how hard it gets, it'll be worth it to follow him. And this is what Peter means when he says, this is the grace of God. Stand fast in it. Live in it. Believe it. Trust it. And stake your life on it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this word uh, that you've placed before us, uh, for this amazing letter, this acknowledgement that life is hard in a number of different ways that are alike and different from your church 2,000 years ago. Our lives are hard in ways that only we know. We go through struggles that nobody can fully understand. But God, you know. You know us, you know our hearts, and you've still called us to trust you, to live for you, to obey you, to follow you. God, help us to believe that what you say is true. Help us to stand firm in faith. God, would you make us strong? Would you make us firm and steadfast? Would you help us to be alert and aware of the dangers around us? Would you help us to simply choose faith? So God, as we worship you this morning, we pray that you would just, as you do through song, through music, through us being together, declaring this together, God, would you give us just a moment where it hits us, where you remind us of who you are and what you've done. I pray that we would leave this morning with a sense that it is worth it. It's worth it to follow you. It's worth it to love you. God, you are so good. Show us more of that this morning. We love you.